Imagine this. You wake up one morning and you realize every insect on this planet has vanished. At first, it seems like a good thing. No more mosquitoes trying to suck your blood. No more ticks to give you or your dog Lyme disease. While we would all be celebrating the lack of little flies in your face and the quiet that only comes when the cicadas and the crickets are gone, something will go terribly wrong. It would start with the plants. Without insects to pollinate them, almost all of our flowering plants would die away. After that, all of the organisms that rely on plants would begin to die off. The animals that go extinct will pile up on the ground. Because without insects, there's nothing to break down organic matter. Ecosystems will have collapsed completely, and no amount of food you can store in your pantry will be able to save you. Nothing new would be able to grow. And within 50 years, all life on Earth would have ended. Now, this might seem a little apocalyptic, and a little unrealistic. And you could be thinking that a scenario like this could never happen anytime soon. But, regrettably, this may soon be our reality. In 2019, Biological Conservation reported that 40% of all insect species are declining globally, and that a third of them are endangered. And that number is only increasing. Core of this problem? The lack of native plants, which are the only food that insects can eat. This is why native plants are so important. Another thing stopping the growth of native plants are invasive plants, which grow rapidly, crowding out native species as they have no natural predators. To plant more native plants, we also need to take out invasive ones. The good news is that there's nothing inevitable about insect decline, and there's a simple solution to help solve this problem. Planting Native. I'm Adya Joshi. And I'm James Vera, and this is Saving Insects, One Native Plant at a Time. I'm sitting in my bedroom, and a single bush the size of the bedroom spreading out, and I, I would wrap a chain around the trunk and pull it out with the tractor. That was very satisfying because then I had this big body and a big open space. This is University of Delaware professor Douglas Tallamy talking about what it was like to remove invasive plants from his and his wife's yard. Here he is describing how he took out a multiflora rose bush with its daisy-like white flowers with bright yellow insides. Originally from Asia, these plants have nothing to stop their growth in Pennsylvania, where Professor Ptolemy lives, crowding out the native plants in his yard. The big problem with non-native plants is that they provide no food for insects. Because plants don't want to share their energy and, and they protect it. They guard it with nasty tasting chemicals. So only the insects that are adapted to reaching that food, that energy, are the ones that are able to do it. And our insects are not adapted to being able to exploit the resources of non-native plants. There are some exceptions, but not many. And there's no reason to favor a non-native plant over a native plant, at least from an ecological perspective. Removing invasive plants takes regular, vigilant work. As those invasive plants keep coming back, it's hard to keep ripping out invasives, but everyone can do their part by regularly removing the ones around them, on their property, if they own any, including the edge, like spots next to a road or sidewalk. If we were to leave the property untouched for two or three years, it'd be right back where it started from. But when you put the work in to bring back native species and keep out invasive ones, beautiful things happen, like wildlife returning to areas they'd previously abandoned. The very first year, there was a, an acorn mast from white oak acorns about a mile down the street. I got some of those acorns and, and I just planted them. And those trees are now more than 60 feet tall. I've been at it for five years now. 
but I'm up to 1,199 species of moths that I've taken pictures of in our yard. And we've also recorded 61 species of birds that have bred on our property because we put the plants back. This is the complete opposite of the apocalyptic scene we heard in the beginning of the episode. And it shows how important insects are. We need insects. And insects can only eat native plants. And if there are invasive plants, they take away space from native ones. So there's less food for insects. Native plants, in addition to providing food for the super important insects, are also better at sequestering carbon, managing the watershed, and supporting a viable ecosystem. Native plants do all those things better, and there's nothing that does it worse than lawn. So when you have 44 million acres of lawn in this country, that's a giant wasted opportunity. 44 million acres of lawn, that's an area the size of New England. Most lawns are made of Kentucky bluegrass, which, despite its name, isn't native to Kentucky or anywhere else in North America. It's a highly invasive plant that is often considered to be a marker of degraded ecosystems. So why haven't people planted more native plants, especially in the United States, with its 44 million acres of lawn? The reason we've done that over the years is just for aesthetics. We fit in with the culture of this neighborhood. We want to be accepted. And that's the accepted culture, a big lawn. This is so tragic because in addition to helping with the ecosystem, native plants are much easier to maintain. They need minimal care and resources to help them grow just because they're so well adapted to the environment you are trying to grow them in. And they are more resilient to the extreme weather in that area that comes with climate change. But you have to get rid of the invasive species before you plant native ones. And you have to keep ripping them out as they come back every year. Professor Ptolemy and his wife continue to pull out new, baby multiflora rose bushes to this day. This can feel overwhelming, but one thing that can help is starting small. To look at an example of this, we spoke to Pradeep Krishan, a naturalist and author of Trees of Delhi. While working on his book, he got the opportunity to work on a two-acre property in the Himalayas. He chose to work with native plants, having seen how few resources the plants took to grow and how well they supported local animals. The project was an absolute success, and Pradeep soon got asked to work on a larger project at Merhangar Fort in Rajasthan. They had a 70 hectare, which is about 170 acres of rocky volcanic land. And he said, can you green this area for us? Had Pradeep tried to make the area look like a municipal park with green lawns and sparse trees, it would take the importing of millions of tons of soil to level out the area and watering every plant, every day, forever. And that's what he told the person in control of the park. And I looked at this place and it was completely chock-a-block full of Prosopis juliflora, which is a kind of mesquite. The seeds of which had been broadcast in the 1930s. It was a very daunting thing to look at this landscape. It was very rocky, very eroded, very little soil and full of these trees. Pradeep knew it was crucial to remove those invasive plants if the native plants were going to survive. So he and his team had to first take out all the Prosopis juliflora. This was no easy task, especially to avoid destroying the landscape at the same time. They had to bring in sandstone miners from the Convalia community to dig out the plants one by one. On the first day when we met one of the leaders of the community, a man called Dunsing, 
and we took, took him to a bush which was about four feet high. He actually sat down on his haunches and he tapped the ground lightly and then he turned his face away and then he hit the rock quite hard with his very heavy hammer. We thought he was just averting his face because he didn't want shards of the rock to go into his eyes. But that's not why he had averted his face. He was actually listening to the sound that his hammer was making. You know, we realized, oh my God, these guys gather all the information they need about where to cut in from by listening. This delicate process took an incredibly long time. A team of 15 miners worked full-time for seven years to remove these plants. But in the end, the result was worth all of the effort. We had something like 40 species of birds that we'd seen in the park when we started. It's about 212 now, you know? So that's just, I mean, these are birds that are flying overhead and seeing a little biodiverse island in the middle of a, a city of 1.4 million people and say, oh, we can see lots of possibilities and opportunities for ourselves there. Some of the birds that were brought back were the Indian eagle owl, the desert wheat ear, the green bee eater, and the white-eared bulbul. Pradeep Krishan's work shows that it is possible to restore areas that seem completely lost to invasives, and that when those species are replaced with native ones, all of the native animals come back to that area. Now, you might not have access to any land, let alone 100 acres of land, or the money to hire 15 miners full-time. But here's what you can do to help biodiversity in your yard or outside on your balcony. Number one on the list is reduce the area of lawn. So I say, let's cut the area of lawn in half. What are you gonna put back where the lawn was? You're gonna put important native plants. You want to modify your light system. Light pollution at night is one of the major drivers of insect declines. You can put a motion sensor on it so it only turns on when the bad man comes. Or even easier, you can put in a yellow bulb because yellow wavelengths are less attractive to nocturnal insects. Don't hire a mosquito fogger. They come and kill all the pollinators and monarchs and everything else we're trying to save. And they don't control mosquitoes at the same time. To find out what plants are native to where you live, you can visit www.nwf.org slash native plant finder slash plants. And to work around the fact that nurseries do not sell most of the native plants in your area, Professor Talamy offers a clever, cost-effective solution. Rather than buying big plants or trees, pick the seeds of native trees in your area off the ground and plant them in your yard. Just be sure to protect it until the tree grows large enough. And for those of us who don't have any land or place to put plants, here's what you can do to help. Talk to your local government representatives and encourage them to push for planting more native plants in publicly owned lands, parks, and more. Not only do they help restore ecosystems, but native plants will save the government money on watering too. If there's one thing you take away from this podcast, it's that plants aren't just for decoration. They're a key part in maintaining a healthy food web from plants to insects to birds and everything else, and a feasible solution for this problem of insect decline and biodiversity loss. It's like that telephone pole in the front yard. I think it's ugly. We need the telephone pole. It's not an option. We accept it. Nobody complains about it because it's essential. We need to start thinking about nature that way. It's not just there for our entertainment. So, no, you can't take down that oak tree. And this brings us back to the insects. Imagine that we had planted more of those oak trees and gotten rid of the invasive plants. 
Instead of a world without insects, the world would have more insects, especially caterpillars and butterflies. The birds would come back, feeding their babies with the plentiful caterpillars, while the butterflies flutter around, moving pollen from flower to flower to help them grow. So no, you can't take down that oak tree, because that is what's feeding the insects that are so important for our lives. They pollinate our plants, feed our birds, and decompose dead things. So take out those invasive plants and plop down some new native oaks. This program was produced by Adya Joshi and James Vera. Thank you to Professor Douglas Talamy from the University of Delaware and naturalist and author Pradeep Krishan for allowing us to interview them. This podcast would not have been possible without them. For a list of music and sound effects used for today's episode, you can read our show notes. This podcast was created for the Stanford University class, Stories to Save Our Planet. Thanks as always to our professor, Laura Joyce Davis, who helped us through the grueling process of going from story pitch to a final podcast. When we asked her about slacking off on this project, she reminded us, You have to stay on this stuff. Thanks for listening.